This is Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating anything that comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch-up and then two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one by myself. We pick our topics from the Making Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and analysis on culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to work our way to some sort of conclusion, often working through thoughts and challenges along the way. Good morning, Cherise. I wish that I could wake up early enough before this recording that I would lose like the morning voice by the time we record, but I don't know how long that takes. Has anyone picked it out? Has anyone been like, you sound different? No. I have to say, so far, no. I have to say, at least you haven't picked up a British accent or an English accent. Yeah, it's um, gotten better. You've been as fighting in, it. I'm less, I have been fighting it. Hey, can you turn on your video? I like, I like to feel like I'm actually talking to a person and not to the make and logo. Fair enough. Fair enough. I've turned on my video. Thank you. And, uh, no, it's gotten easier, the whole maintaining my existing North American accent. I'm not really sure why. Maybe I'm just like acclimatizing to hearing people speak in English Do people accents. automatically assume you're American? Yes. Yes. A hundred percent yes. And the, the weird thing about having a North American accent in the UK is that you stick out <laughs> even though you're speaking the same language, like... It's like pointing out the obvious, People but will, it's different when you're experiencing it, right? That's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah, I know, I know I'm pointing out the obvious, but I, I think it's just like my school and the population here, there are fewer North Americans than I expected. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm really strange, but I'm, I'm more rare than I thought I would be. Interesting. I also have quite a strong accent, it turns out. So... Mm. Well, relative to other people, apparently, here. It's quite neutral, I'd say, but I don't know. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Published a story with Tan Dun. Mm-hmm. That was actually a pretty big one for us. It was like for the first time we'd partnered someone to do a story like this. So SEMP, which I guess you could say it's the first or second biggest English-speaking newspaper in Asia hit us up to work on an audio story with Tan Dun, who, if you're not familiar, you're probably more familiar with his work. He's a Chinese composer who did the soundtrack for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, a Jet Li movie. I forget which one it is. Shame on me. But yeah, he's like pretty well known. I think he's won- Beijing Olympics. Yeah, 2008 Beijing Olympics. I think he's won some Grammys along the way as well. So he's actually- very well respected in that regard, but I don't think that many people know of him. I mean, for us, we kind well, of I think, were like jokingly comparing him to like the the Asian Hans Zimmer. <laughs> well, not a lot of people know the names of composers, period. Yeah. So I don't think that's like a reflection of his skill so much as like the state of things, right? Yeah. Like that's just not, composers' names are not something you memorize. Yeah. He, he ended up being super interesting, like, and he's, very passionate about what he does and he always finds ways to connect music back to something else like whether it was cooking whether it was like um the act of traveling he talks about spirituality quite a lot yeah he does our story yeah 
And I, I think ultimately the, the thing that made it as well. so interesting was taking someone that's, that's outside the traditional sort of wheelhouse of what music can be for us, which I think in, in many ways, classical music is probably mm. not something that falls within the music we listen to on an everyday. But I think what's most fascinating is how he approaches the act of creating music or like his inspirations and how, yeah. I mean, he looks at a lot of different things to get sort of that inspiration, like golf or cooking or whatever. But even then, like I think Nathan and, and Elvik did a really good job kind of teaming up on this one. Elvik did a great job on the sound engineering part. Nathan, with the text and the voiceover, like I thought it, it's something that we could definitely be proud of. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, yeah, definitely. My topic this week is a story by Nikki, and I'm going to pronounce this last name incorrectly, Ogunake. They brought together a bunch of different people from the industry, whether they were designers, fashion editors, people that did trend forecasting, agency people. And what was interesting was just to kind of see the different points of view and how these themes sort of emerged. And what I suspect anyways, was that they probably just did these interviews with semi-generic questions and they went back afterwards, consolidated all of them and started to pull out themes, which led to That's sort what of I these, would have done. Yeah, these 13 or so topics. There's 13 in total. And some of my favorite quotes included, fashion month allows designers and creators to turn in essence a commercial product into art, giving a brand its context and bringing a creative vision to life. This is where magic is felt and where fashion's energy is harnessed. It is where the dreams are created. And this is by the designers at RJ. And it's, I believe it's in relation to like the role of the fashion show. Uh, another one was fashion is a reflection of things that go on in the broader culture. And it's a space that both delights and frustrates people. But I think in some ways that level of frustration is a good thing because I think people should care about what the fashion industry is doing. And I think they should care about the kinds of imagery it's putting out and the way that it's speaking to both men and women and how it depicts them. And this is by, I believe, a fashion editor, Robin Given. And last one. I've watched an established system with rules and formulas be broken down into the new world that we're living in. I think that it's actually a great time to take creative, smart risks. You have to take creative risks while being consistent for your customer and retailers. All formulas are kind of out the window. There's been, in general, a recalibration of scale of business. So one of the reasons why I picked this topic, I mean, as much as I think that I don't like fashion, I actually really appreciate fashion more on a, I think as, as the second quote mentioned, like kind of a reflection of culture in general and based on, I guess the interest of the making community fashion obviously resonates a lot with them based on what people have said. And I hate saying this, but like the stats. <laughs> so what, one thing that what, what, wait, I want to back up a second. Yeah. Why, why would you say that you, Describe yourself as not liking fashion. Because I would say that in general, I think that the superficiality of fashion is something that I personally feel as though like, to, how, do I put, how do I put it this way? To be overtly influenced by fashion, I think in my eyes, 
is not something I like to be associated with. Meaning like, I don't like to be but why? subservient to trends. I think it's honestly an elitist mm-hmm. thing. Like, I just feel as though like I have a point of view and like, I don't like fashion for what it is. I like, I guess, but that's the thing is like, it sounds stupid as I say this, but being so overtly trend focused, which is, I think in many ways, what fashion is, is something that I don't really know if I feel comfortable identifying with. Like, I don't want to be associated with that. And it's in many ways, the association thing that I think drives people a certain way. Do you think that that is genuinely your own feelings about fashion as an individual, or it's more about what you're trying to convey outwardly and you think that other people have certain assumptions about fashion. You know, one thing that's for sure was upon, like when I, when I used to work at Hypebeast, I think the one thing that was very evident was that the minute you interacted with anybody, there was a very sort of obvious slant as to how you approached this person. And it was built off of the fact that the whole positioning of what you did was judging someone whether they had the right sneakers, they they wore the right brands, et cetera. And I mean, I'm sure there's still part of it, right? But I, I think that ultimately I wanted to move away from that and be under the pretense that you and I connecting are going to be based off of something more meaningful than whether you have the right clothes on. Does that make sense? Like, there's act, It does, but I think what I'm trying to drive at is I think that our, your and my, like as in actually you and me and not society, I think our feelings towards fashion are mixed up with our assumption of what other people think fashion is. And that's why we don't like to associate ourselves with liking fashion or talking about fashion because we play into this global perception that fashion is superficial. But I I think it is very much superficial, is it not? But aren't we talking about how it isn't actually or how it has the potential to not be or that there are parts of it that are not? Like, isn't that like what how to fix fashion talks about? Like this, the quotes that you selected. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think I deliberately selected those quotes. I think that you've kind of touched on two things that are kind of like a 1A, 1B, where on the one hand, you're 100% correct. I think that we probably dismiss fashion on the basis that like, you know, the reason why people are so big into it is probably because of its role in, in identity creation, right? Like you're basically wearing things that you feel align you with a certain identity. Yeah. Other element yes. of it is like, well, and I, and I, this is the part that I think has been the biggest challenge is that it's still an art form, right? Or it should be considered mm-hmm. an art form. And I think maybe the fact that it's moved so far away from the one B of being an art form into the one A, I think that's probably why I feel like I want to distance myself from it. Hmm. Because I think that the 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 one A part, and I think the identity element of it that's hard to wrap your head around is, I think the identity right now is really focused around people's perception of of you having that versus it relating back to some sort of like deeper meaning or movement. Yeah. So one thing I don't think that I've talked to you about previously is 
In the interview with Avery Truffleman that I did in April, I actually cut out like a three minute part of our conversation where we talked about fashion. And she asked me, how come Macon doesn't embrace that more? And because of our background, why don't we sort of push that aspect? And I actually kind of struggled, well, I kind of struggled with that question partially because it was like, well, I'm here to talk about you and now I'm talking about Macon, but also because I was trying to like untangle what I just said to you, where I think the reason we don't is not because we're not genuinely interested, but because we have a, we have a fear almost, or we have this hesitation that's comes from societal perceptions of fashion. And we don't want to be thought of as a fashion publication because there's a societal perception that fashion publications are vapid. Yeah. And it, it bums me out to find, to see that, that we don't have enough ground to embrace something because we don't want to be cornered into yeah. it. It's a, it's a good point because like, I think that I would 100 percent stand behind all the fashion stories you've done. I found I but I Oh definitely. I think they've been so fascinating. So maybe, I don't know, I I it, it, you kind of have me stuck here because I think most people that do fashion are by no means a representation of what they put out. And I don't know if that's right or wrong. I mean and no yeah, no l- I, let me rephrase that. I think that that certain people do put out things that are representation of what they do. Like I think Brendan of Noah, great example. I think outlier. And then there's other people that I feel have inklings of it, but I, I don't think there's a direct correlation with the stuff they're selling as a business and their personal interests. And I wonder how yeah. consistent that is across fashion as a whole. And like, I, I the one thing I find so fascinating about fashion is that like, it's, it's like a a wordless language, right? Like you can kind of go anywhere and there's mm-hmm. an immediate sort of messaging that's associated with what you wear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because actually you picked quotes that are all kind of on this broader theme of fashion being more than clothes or trends. But some of the quotes that popped out to me were about the fast fashion aspect and sustainability, because it's definitely something I think about a lot in terms of mm-hmm. clothing and apparel and really like across the board, all the people interviewed talk about the problems in fast fashion and that fast fashion is not sustainable period and is harmful to the environment. But it's kind of funny because like you, these people who are saying this, who clearly see it are still producing the clothing. They're still part of the system. So it's confusing. Yeah to talk about because all of these people are saying, Hey, we know that fashion has an issue with the pace of seasons with, you know, you see it now you buy it now with people expecting really cheap clothes and they're articulating all these problems, but what is it? Are they doing to fix it? And do they have the power even? Are these people even the ones with the power to change it? Actually, when I read one of those quotes, I was thinking to myself, imagine if you had, some sort of garment that became cheaper the more times you wore it. So it's like you could buy it and it'd be like a $500 jacket, but every time you wore it, you would like get money back. And it ended up being like, a, let's say after it's all said and done, it you could end up with like a $200 jacket because you had worn mm-hmm. it sufficient a sufficient number of times. But yeah, no, I, I think that ultimately I also wanted to pick things that were a bit more positive too, because... It's always a kind of an exercise. Uh, in, in I see your notes on this now. 
my own personal beliefs into like what is fashion? Why is it impactful? And like, do I even have a stance or can my stance always waver? And I, I'm, I'm okay being wrong. Like I'm, I also feel as though the way that I, I generally approach things, it's almost like forcing myself to be more disciplined about what I like. And I don't know if that is good or bad, right? Like I, don't get me wrong. There's, there's shit I see. And I'm like, Oh, I want to buy that. Or like, that's really nice. And for whatever reason, I felt as though like, Hey, maybe you should fight that urge to buy and spend on fashion. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I a hundred percent think that we all need to buy less stuff. Yeah. And I generally do buy a lot or consume a lot less than, than I've done before. I think the one thing that's probably gone up in terms of like quote unquote consumption is definitely, and it's not even, and I bring this up because it's equally as bad for the environment is like air travel, right? That shit is not good for the environment. And I do that quite a bit. Well, I mean, it's not as, uh, it's not as bad. Like on the grand scheme of things, it's anyway, it is what it is. Air travel is what it is. Um, like you won't save a lot by not doing it. Like taking a boat doesn't make a huge difference. Sorry, this is a totally different other subject now. You're just trying to make yourself feel I better. I do see, I don't travel as much as you. So I don't know. Maybe I am just trying to feel make myself feel better. You put a note in about like having a positive mentality towards the industry and not being constantly down on creative media in that it's, depressing. Yeah. Like spiraling downwards. Cause I think at the end of the day, it's like fashion in some ways does provide a bit of an anecdote to the way things are like, you know, at some point in time where we have done them is like making has t-shirts. That's not really fashion in the most traditional sense, but like at some point in time, you know, it could be, it could be perceived as a fashion item. It's like wearing a New York times hat or something. Right. And I, I'd be, ignorant to like dismiss that because I think that the role fashion plays is like so powerful that that identity element you can't really dismiss, but how do you create Mm -hmm. a more powerful example of it? And I think like, you know, having purpose and meaning behind what's created, like forcing people to be a little bit more intelligent in how they make these decisions, not being so subservient to like hype, all that stuff. Like I feel that would be a really interesting thing to tackle because I'm not really against consumer products per se. I'm against the massive amounts of shit that have very little meaning besides being a means to an end. Yeah. It's funny that you talk about consumer contribution because I did find that a little bit, I mean, I know they interviewed a lot of people. It was a little bit conflicting the message that they're talking about because some people were saying, Oh, as a brand, you need to just really embrace your ideal and buckle down on it. Like Brendan Babenzian, right? Like having a vision and then just pursuing that wholeheartedly or like out the outlier guys. Um, but then there's other people who are saying, this is an era where you really need to be listening to your customer. You really need to be listening to your consumer. And I think my natural reaction is to think is like, well, those two things aren't compatible. <laughs> but... I guess to try to think about how it works in reality, it's talking to your consumers or customers and hearing from them and then using that feedback, whether you reject it or accept it to modify the deeper message. Yeah. Should we move on? 
Oh, I also just, since I did mention Avery, I also want to shout out her recent mini series. She did a series of six episodes called Articles of Interest, which are about fashion in a broader sense, not about any specific brand or designer, but about different items within fashion. So there's plaid, pockets, blue jeans, and it talks about kind of the history of these things or these materials. And it's a really different, it's an interesting other look at also fashion, but something that I don't think we talk about a lot. Yeah, no, I've downloaded them. I haven't listened to them yet, but I'm looking forward to them. Yeah, I think you would like it. I think you, I think you would enjoy it. picked my subject mainly because I feel like I wanted to just pick something different from what we usually talk about. Though I'm kind of remembering a similar, as I'm talking about this, I kind of remember a similar subject that we picked in the past. I'll just get into it. So Dan Kopf writes for Quartz Africa on the effects in developing countries of giving entrepreneurs money. And the specific example that he's talking about happened in Nigeria between 2012 and 2015. They ran, the the government with help from the World Bank ran this experiment that was something like a reality TV show competition without the reality TV part, but basically it's like Shark Tank. So they asked entrepreneurs under the age of 40 to pitch ideas like business ideas to them. And then they wound up giving away over those three years, gave away a hundred million dollars to over 3000 entrepreneurs. So these were grants, not loans. So it's just giving them money to finance their business ideas. And it wound up being really positive. Like the effects were good enough that now a bunch of other countries in Africa are hopping onto this and executing like their version of the same thing. One thing that I was kind of shocked by or like that I didn't know before this is that 40% of people between the ages of 25 to 34 were unemployed in 2017 in Nigeria. And also the median age in the country is 18. That's crazy. Which is low. I know, right? Yeah. So basically there's lots of people who are right prime for working, a lot of young people and the economy is growing, but it's just not making jobs quickly enough. Hence the competition. And what the competition proves is something that we might know, like we might logically be able to say, but I think a lot of people have a perception, just like a deeply ingrained perception that if you're smart, then you're going to be able to find the money to fund yourself. But in reality, that's not how the economy works in countries like Nigeria and arguably also countries like the States and Hong Kong. And what the experiment proves is that, you know, people without money given money are not immediately wasteful. Like that money doesn't just go to like drugs and alcohol, right? Like people are actually being productive with their money. And with that in mind, governments can consider doing more things that are like this, where you just do cash infusion, essentially. So 
Next year, Kenya is going to run basically the same thing in their country and give over $20 million over the year. What I found particularly interesting was specifically giving money to people who have ideas because it's actually not new to me, this idea of like just giving money to people in poor conditions, but trying to find a way to encourage business innovation. Yeah, no, I, I think this is something that's really interesting because like if you really think about it, there's a lot of talk for the future in terms of how you're going to make meaningful, I guess, participants of society and culture in the face of like automation or whatever. Obviously, in a situation like this, maybe automation is not really what's the issue at hand. It's just the actual necessity of creating jobs, right? Yeah. They haven't reached the automation stage of development yeah. yet. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously even in the Western world, you haven't even reached it. But what's going to be interesting is that as this starts to kind of create a foundation, I think there's a lot of benefit from having a younger generation deeply ingrained within like sort of the entrepreneurial mindset and the structures that be. And I think the reason why is that there's so many skills that you learn from entrepreneurship that in general, like barring ego or whatever, like you can always go kind of the other way. Like you could be an entrepreneur and you could also find a way to integrate into like an existing company. But I think one thing that's for certain is when you leave a company, let's say you're 35, right? And you try to start a business for the first time, it can also be really challenging unless you've been deeply part of the structure previously. So I think there's a lot of like upside to it as well. And like you've kind of seen the value that comes with having the opportunity for people to kind of jump in and learn and especially have support. And what I would, what I'm not so certain, but like, does the government also provide like business building support or is it more like, hey, hey here's the money, go well, and do your thing? The thing is that they ran several experiments and some of them included that, like, training and education and some of them didn't. And they're experimenting with, well, how much impact does providing the training? actually have. And so far the results is like not a lot, which is kind of funny to talk about, but basically they're kind of discovering, okay, maybe the training is not worth the resources we put into it. Like if we put the money we spent having trainers and having a building, et cetera, into just giving it to people, that would be more effective. Got it. Like the overall impact for the country is greater if you just put the money into people's hands yeah. as, a, as opposed to allocating some of that money to training. Obviously, like ideal scenario is, you know, give people money and give them training, but with the limited resources, like what has the greater effect? Yeah, I, I definitely think that. And, and, and obviously some people get lost, yeah. right? Like not all of the money given has the same, has equal impact. Uh, and I also think that when you look at this as well, like I, to your first point or one of the earlier points you made, you were talking about how smart people will be able to find the money. But ultimately, I think that there's a lot of different things that take place too. It's like the ability to take a risk, access to capital. So many of these things are part of like business building that yeah. it helps to have some of that edge taken off. Yeah. I mean, obviously like my perception is from like a different society, but I think even in first world societies, there's this idea that, okay, if you, if you have a good idea, how come you're not lucrative yet? Like if it was really such a good idea, 
you'd already be making money off of it. But that's not the reality. That's not the, that's not my lived reality. Yeah, and that one thing that's been popping up more recently is that there's a challenge or there's like there's there's a war that's at hand within sort of internal company building where it's like product versus marketing, right? And like I kind of shared that one thing that was on uh, the Slack channel about the former IKEA person who launched his own agency and he was saying like, oh, you should just dedicate resources into design versus marketing and it'll take care of itself. And But like the reality of the situation now is that having a great product doesn't mean all that much anymore because you need people to see it and hear about it. Yeah. No, but I really like this idea as well of competitions. Oh, that... That's how we talked about this before. Remember that time I referenced a podcast that was about like competitions giving a country hope? I think so, This was so, a while yeah. back. Anyway, I like this idea of how humans respond to competition. Somehow just knowing that, I mean, obviously getting money is nice, but even if it's a small grant, it stimulates having business ideas. Mm-hmm. Just because you know that you know that there's like a limited pool, but they're giving like no strings attached money, even if it's a small sum. And then that compels thousands of people to think about, do I have an innovative business idea? Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm saying is like, maybe in our lives, it would also be good to have that sort of incentive that the structure of a contest with like an end goal and a limited pool can somehow bring out better stuff in us, I think. Yeah, I'm trying to think like, this is one thing that I've always found interesting and, you know, working a bit more with certain people, especially Scott uh, in this space, like over at making it, he's kind of recognized that in a lot of ways, creative people aren't all that organized and the, the structure behind building a business is actually quite critical to know that you're hitting all the right check boxes and whatnot. As I mentioned, I'm trying to try to figure this out because like, how do you best educate and bring people to the forefront for this stuff? Because great ideas with a bit of money, with a bit of structure can actually be incredibly powerful. I mean, the idea is the most valuable thing, arguably, albeit you still need everything else to make it a reality. Um, you start an internal competition for the employee with the best org chart business organization plan. You'll give us uh, 2000 Hong Kong dollars. Sure. It's probably not attractive enough. Yeah. I don't think any of us are going to get our shit together for 2000 Hong Kong, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. But you kind of see the point. Yeah. I mean, like that, I think that's yeah, really no, important. I was joking. I was being facetious. Of course. Of course. I was joking. Um, don't actually take my idea and run it. I will not participate in this competition. I, I did think at some point in time when, when you have like a, more disposable cash to like run things like that where whether it's internal, external, doesn't really matter. It's more like how can you help provide resources to someone and allow them the opportunity to build it out? Even if it's not for the sake of like business success, which obviously is the end goal, but like it's it's less about whether it's successful or not, but it's like the learnings of building something from scratch and how hard it is and can you take those learnings and can you pass it along to somebody else? I think something that's so hard in terms of encouraging structure and scale in creative businesses is that 
we lack tangible metrics or the tangible metrics that we can find are not things that we feel like we should value. So it's hard to give people benchmarks when you don't want to go by numbers. So how do you how do you put a metric that is qualitative as opposed to quantitative? And then how do you expect people to meet those goals? Yeah, no, totally. I, that's the one thing that you can definitely figure it out. But I think in general, like we're, we're kind of in the business of selling services and products, right? Whatever that may look like. So I think that kind of needs to be the initial reference point. I, I mean, I guess I would disagree. I think that there's a lot of qualitative things you can slap around stuff. It does fundamentally change the type of product or service you create or offer, but it's still doable. It's just less, it's not as easy as a number, right? Like encouraging structure. And I mean, yeah, some things we do are numbers based, like deadline based or deliverables based, but it's, I just don't think we have it as easy as like, let's say if you were in retail and like, let's say you're a car salesman, super easy, right? If you're a business manager, you just have to say, okay, everybody has to sell five cars a day. Yeah. And I don't see you as having an equivalent in your position, like being able to tell each of us, like, I want you to sell five cars a day. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I think that we can continue like debating this point, but I don't know if it's going to get us anywhere. Well, the other issue with making it up now is that we don't talk on, we don't talk in real life until we're recording. So it makes, I don't know if anyone else realizes this, but it makes our episodes more scatterbrained, I think, or a little bit more tangential because this is like our opportunity to talk about anything. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to regularly when I was in the office, you would we would just like turn around. I think that's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in learning more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at macon.com and eugene at eugene at macon.com. We love hearing your feedback. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.